the world is no better than what I bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And if I can just sort of clean up my small piece of the territory, um, I'm doing something for the world. And it may seem very insignificant, but it's not. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the ecological slogan, you know, think globally, but act locally. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. We have entered our fifth year here at Reboot and our fifth season of the podcast. And over the last few months, we have been resurfacing episodes that were particularly popular and impactful. And so today we're bringing back a conversation between Jerry and James Hollis, where they explore a concept that we see quite often in our work with leaders and organizations. And that is shadow. Enjoy. Welcome again to the Reboot Podcast. I'm Dan Putt. It's really an honor to welcome one of our Reboot teachers, someone we've learned so much from, author and Jungian analyst, James Hollis. Jerry and James talk about shadow, what it is, why it's so important, and what you can do with it. And I think even more importantly, they talk about how the shadow can show up in the world around us, our organizations, our family, and our ability to relate to and be with other people. James also talks about how being with and dealing with the shadow is not just a life-changing activity, but potentially world-changing. I have to say, now listening to this conversation immediately following the election and all that came with that, I really felt moved to go deeper into my own work. Now first, let me say, I acknowledge that I'm looking at this from a place of privilege, but I wondered, what was my role in all of this? And what are the ways in which I'm showing up that I say I don't want and that contributed in some way to the situation we're now in. I felt called to do more and to use this as a teaching moment for myself and for my daughter. So for this introduction, I actually wrote something directly to her, which I hope you'll allow me to share with you now. Emmy, I'm speaking to you just weeks before you welcome a brother or sister into your world and become a two and a half year old. The world, as I suppose it always is, is full of uncertainty, and we've just come through a really challenging election, one that seems to have revealed a divided country and reminded us all of its fragility. This is a time of great anxiety. Perhaps some of the things we fear now will be passed by the time you listen to this, and I'm sure there will be new ones on the horizon. But right now, for me, it feels like we are caught in a hurricane of uncertainty and fear. Amidst the stream of news and fearful tweets and anxious conversations, it could be easy to fall down into a hole of hopelessness. I know that I've certainly gone there. Sometimes it just feels so heavy. And then I see you. And I remember my greater responsibility and purpose. So where to start? What do you do in a time like this? Go inward. Now let me be clear. Going inward doesn't mean hiding or running. It doesn't mean laying down and letting whatever happens happen. It doesn't mean you ignore or I ignore people doing bad or saying bad things. It means I stop looking to blame the boogeyman. It means I stop complaining about a dirty world when I live in a dirty house. It means I stop blaming everyone else and start asking some tough questions of myself. How am I contributing to the world around me? How am I complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? And perhaps one of the scarier ones, 
What things am I really scared to see about myself and my way of being? That one's really hard. Now, I know I'm far from a perfect man, but I do know that I'm a good man with a good heart, and I know I've become a better man as your father. But I haven't done enough, and it stops now. I promise you to look in the corners of who I am, the things I've avoided in my life until now. I don't know what lies in the corners, what's in my shadow, but I will push myself to find out. I promise you that I'll strive to leave no stone unturned, no shadow without light. I know I can't ask you or those around me to go further than I am willing to go myself. I can't protect you from all the scary things in this world, but I can protect you from the scary things within me. I promise you that. It's time for me to become an even better father and a better man, a man you deserve. So thank you for being a source of courage. It's time to get to work making a better me and a step towards a better world. I love you with all of my heart. Thank you for letting me share that. I hope you'll find this conversation as useful and as moving as I did. Enjoy. Are you looking to stay up to date on all things Reboot? Join our mailing list to receive updates on the podcast, including our most recent episodes, corresponding blog posts, and updates on exclusive Reboot services and events. Head to Reboot.io slash sign up. Hi, Jim. It is a delight to have you on the show today with us. And uh, before I get all gushy and fanboyish, if I could ask you to just take a minute and introduce yourself to our listeners, that would be great. Certainly. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jerry. Uh, this is James Hollis speaking to you from uh, Washington, D.C., where I'm a director of the Washington Jung Society and also have a private practice here as a Jungian analyst. And I, I do quite a bit of teaching and um, writing. And uh, that's what's brought us together today. So uh, full speed ahead. Oh, thank you. And just just to to help folks navigate this, I first encountered uh, your work uh, really when I was at uh, my own middle passage, midlife crisis, although at the time I didn't know that that's what was in fact happening for me. Um, And I was about 38. And as many people know uh, who listen to the show, I was in the midst of a massive life transition. I was moving from having been an investor through J.P. Morgan and my own venture capital firm into the next half of my life, the second half of my adult life, my, in some ways, my truest adulthood. Um, and I was 38 and uh, read a slim little book of yours called The Middle uh, Passage, um, which then, along with a number of books, set me on a path that has led me to where I am today. So, uh, you know, I'll say publicly, thank you. Um, your, your work has been really, really uh, powerful. And I, I would love to spend a little bit of time today talking um, in depth, again, about the notion, the Jungian notion of shadow, okay. and specifically as it relates to leadership. But before we sort of plunge in, can I ask you, and, and you've probably had to do this many times in your life, can I ask you to just briefly describe the shadow? Sure. The the shadow is the term that Jung used to describe those parts of ourselves or our organizations 
which when brought into consciousness, we find troubling. Maybe they're troubling because they are contradictory to our values. Maybe they're troubling because they, they violate our expectations. Sometimes they're troubling because they ask things of us that are not comfortable, like to grow up, for example. I mean, probably the biggest uh, shadow issue we all have to face is, am I living the life I'm supposed to be living, or am I living in a, in a much narrower frame of possibilities? You know, Jung said once, um, we all walk in shoes too small for us, mm. which was his metaphor for saying, you know, we all have to adopt these uh, strategies for survival and adaptation in the world and getting our needs met as best we can in a finite world. And um, often we become too identified with or tied to, um, or they're simply operating autonomously. Those strategies that were once seemingly helpful to us at an earlier stage of our life, and what was helpful at one point often is constricted later. Mm. So while, while it makes sense intellectually to say, I'd like to grow, I'd like to move into a larger place, psychologically speaking, um, it almost always comes at some cost. And usually there's some sort of anxiety that one has to face doing that, which is why change is so difficult. Mm -hmm. People say, well, I want to change, I want to move in this direction or that direction, and yet they don't. And why don't they? Well, it's because, you know, the adaptation, limiting as it may be, is also many times a, a kind of deal we've made with anxiety. It's the way we try to buy out of greater stress. Mm. So step into a, a larger life, a larger level of accountability, uh, is, is very threatening in a way. And so paradoxically, that's a shadow issue. Now, again, shadow contains all that uh, is um, perhaps evil in the human possibilities, um, also qualities in ourselves that we want to repudiate. I don't want to say, well, I'm vain, I'm ambitious, uh, I, I am um, I, this or that, and I can see it in my neighbor so clearly, but, but I don't want to see it in myself. And that, that's a shadow issue. You know, Ewing's simplest definition of it was uh, that which I do not wish to be. But the truth is we carry ourselves, our history, our whole psychological apparatus into every relationship we have, whether it's intimate or corporate or, or whatever. And so the shadow is continuously spilling into the world, whether we're aware of it or not. So thank you for that. That That is really helpful. And what I think would be helpful in, in, in the context of this conversation would be to really talk about the application or what happens within the organization. And even more specifically, because we've spent some time in, in dialogue across these podcasts about identifying this, but what do we do when we start to unpack it? So if you don't mind, and I know this, this can be difficult for, for, for an author, I'd like to read back to you something that really struck me in a book that uh, you wrote, I think in 2006 or 2008, called Why Good People Do Bad Things. And in it, you write, it takes a strong sense of self and no little courage to be able to examine and take responsibility for these darker selves when they turn up. It's much easier to deny, blame others, project elsewhere, or bury it and just keep on rolling. It is at these moments of human frailty when we are most dangerous to ourselves our families, and our society. Examining this material is not a form of self-indulgence. 
It is a way of taking responsibility for our choices and their consequences. It is an act of great moral moment, for it brings the possibility of lifting our stuff off of others. Surely the most ethical and useful thing we can do for those around us. That was powerful. I stand by those words. <laughs> I can't say I didn't write them. But, you know, again, uh, Jung said once in a sentence that haunts me in a constructive way, um, is that we can't take people farther than we've traveled ourselves. So wherever I'm stuck, wherever I'm caught in an old adaptation, a complex, or a fear, an avoidance, an evasion, um, it's going to play out, again, in my intimate relationships and uh, in my work relationships and so forth. You know, another, something else that Jung said that was so uh, troubling and yet so challenging, he said, the greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of the parent. So when, when we have a large message before us, so a life example, our tendency is to repeat it to serve it because it's a powerfully charged message. Or something in us um, senses danger or difficulty or constriction, and so we run from it. So I, I either become in some way a repetition of my family of origin dynamics, or I spend my life uh, fleeing them, as, and I lead a kind of fugitive existence. So I'm not untouched by that. So then the, the question comes to the surface, all right, what, what is it that has uh, sort of attached itself to me as a kind of provisional story about who I am, who you are, how we relate to each other? And that's operating pretty autonomously, pretty unconsciously. And yet, as I mentioned before, it keeps spilling into the world as a set of choices, avoidances, consequences, and these things pile up. It, 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 one of the reasons we at Reboot spend so much time working with this an issue, whether it's in our workshops or boot camps or one-on-one -on -one coaching relationships, is that in, in my observation, the way it tends to spill out and 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 we either flee from, and I love your 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 construct around this. We either we, you know we're attached to it, and so we either reenact it or we flee from it. Which, in a sense, is as a Buddhist teacher once said to me, "Dog tied to stick. Dog runs away from stick. Dog still tied to stick. Dog runs mm -hmm. to stick. Dog still tied to stick." Right? Exactly. And so, what we see oftentimes in organizations, and this is the question that I use to prompt people. How am I complicit in creating the conditions at my company that I say I don't want? Mm -hmm. Sure, because any group is the individual writ large. Mm -hmm. and the greater the person's capacity to affect change or leadership within an organization, the greater his or her capacity to influence it for good or ill, obviously. And you can't take an organization farther than you've traveled yourself. In other words, one shouldn't be asking something of others that I really need to address myself. And mm -hmm. so it, it's, it's about, it's use Sartre's phrase for a moment, it's about living in good faith versus bad faith. Mm -hmm. And I think something in us knows the difference. It's not about a kind of external moralism. Um, we're not trying to measure up to someone else's expectations. We're trying to be faithful or truthful around what, what is our core or our essence. You know, for example, I've asked people through the years, and I don't say this casually or lightly, and it's always in a very serious context. However you understand the term, do you think you have a soul? And if you do, what is it asking of you? Now, 
the people I ask are, are often people who have zero religious background. They're, they're not hearing that as a religious term. I, that's why I say, however you understand the term. To this point, I've never had anybody say, no, I don't have a soul, because it's a metaphor for something very profoundly deep within each of us. And, and we all have some kind of troubled relationship with that entity, whatever else you want to call it. And yet it keeps calling us to accountability in some way. So whenever I run from that, guess what? It shows up in my troubling dreams. It shows up in anesthetizing addictions. It shows up in unconscious behaviors. It, it shows up in self-sabotaging patterns in my life. Or it I'm might a, show up in the, in the conflicts we run into in yeah. our organizations. And or generate the conflicts, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so there's another quote uh, from Jung that, that I adore, which is, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct our lives and we will call it fate. Absolutely. That's a pretty scary thought. I mean, yes, I, it is. <laughs> and I, I have to ask myself, now, of what am I unconscious? And by yes. definition, I can't answer that question. Yes. So I, I've said to people, you know, the best place to start, oh, by the way, if you're married, you could just ask your spouse and they'll be <laughs> willing to tell you what your, uh, what your issues are. Um, and many times your friends as well, as you pointed out. But uh, the best place to start in a personal analysis is a kind of frank and, and sober analysis of the patterns of one's own life, particularly patterns that you see where you have patterns of avoidance, for example, that maybe made sense at the time but began to pile up in terms of consequences, or patterns of complicity, or, or patterns where the power complex clicks in and you wind up using the other person or controlling or manipulating the other person. And all of that shadow material, because if brought to consciousness, we might you know, repudiate um, the hidden agenda there, but there is a hidden agenda often. Because what uh, you were alluding to before in the middle passage is where this false self, the adaptive self, that is frankly obligatory because we're born here tiny, vulnerable, dependent on the world. And so we have to figure out a thousand forms of adaptation and strategies and and so forth to sort of manage and, and survive all that. Um, but later, again, those become uh, attachments we have, stories that we uh, carry intrapsychically all the time and serve over and over and over. So in a peculiar way, I work as a psychoanalyst, of course, and uh, when we look at a person's life patterns, we know there's a logic to it. In other words, we don't do crazy things. We start with the pattern and say, all right, this pattern is a concretization or an embodiment of an unconscious situation, or of an unconscious motive, or of a, of a complex of some kind. Now, seeing the patterns allows me to work back into the unconscious. In other words, how do we discern what is unconscious? Because by definition, it's unconscious. Well, that's why we pay attention to dreams, because they are autonomous. We average about six per night. They are commenting on our lives. And when you track that over time with an experienced observer, it's amazing what they will tell you about your your own life journey. Uh, We pay attention to symptoms. In other words, symptoms, the the whole idea in, in North America of modern psychiatry is how quickly do I get rid of the symptom? Mm-hmm. From a psychodynamic standpoint, we ask, why has the symptom come? Mm-hmm. It's a whole different attitude. What is it asking of me? Mm-hmm. What is it bringing to my attention? Maybe what corrective is called for here? 
And, and then to say, I, if I read the symptom, then I began to realize something inside of me autonomously is already responding, critiquing, commenting upon how I'm conducting my life. We also have the feeling function. We also have energy systems. We can will all those things, and often we have to. But if over time one continues to will oneself into an agenda that is not right for your soul, um, your psyche will abandon you. It leads to burnout, uh, a numbing addictions. <laughs> it leads to bitterness. Uh, it leads to anger. And, of course, it leads to depression. Yeah. What, what I often say is that, and, and it was really only through examining my experience of depression and, and suicidal feelings and my own dreams. And as, as the listeners know, I have been in psychoanalysis now for 24 years, right? It's only through that process that I've come to understand that when, when the outer actions of my life do not map to the inner sense of who I am and what, who I want to be, then I lead to a kind of disassociation, which then leads to even deeper depression. And I'm disconnected. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and you've expressed that very well. Um, that's why, uh, in a way, what we're trying to do is read, or I'm putting read in quotes here, yeah. read our lives in terms of the symptoms and the energy systems and the dreams and say, all right, <laughs> what is my psyche saying about all this? I know what my attitude's telling me. I know what my quotas are. I know what the you know achievement goals I have. I know what expectations I'm trying to serve, but what does the what does the soul say inside? And the greater that uh, d discrepancy, the greater that split, the deeper the pathology comes. Now, the word pathology means simply an expression of the suffering of the soul. The psyche is the Greek word for soul, right. so psychopathology means the expression of the suffering of the soul. That already puts a different um, uh, hue on this matter, because then you realize how important it is not to repress the symptomatology, but again, to ask what change is it asking for? What adjustments in my life? Uh, maybe what revolution in my approach to my own life? And then we are engaged in some kind of ongoing cooperative um, conversation because what you talked about, you know, someone from sort of outside your experience might say, 20-some years in analysis, what's wrong with that guy? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that guy. You found that it is the, the deepest, most intimate conversation that you can have, which is a conversation with your own soul. Yeah, well, they, actually, the only conversation that I have had that's deeper and more intimate and longer lasting is my daily journaling practice that I have done since I'm 13. Well, there you go. And right. that was a form of that facilitating that dialogue. Yeah. yeah. Because something inside of us always knows what's right for us. Yeah. You see, that's the paradox. So, so we're now where I really wanted to get to with, with our conversation, which is, so we've been, we've been at Reboot and in, in the work that we're doing, we're trying to send a message about, about looking into, and, and you said, I think you said it so brilliantly, this notion of looking at the symptoms. And again, if we look at the organization and we say, there are symptoms in the organization, mm -hmm. um, why, why are the people around me so greedy? Great question. Who hired them? Why are the people around me, why do they work around the clock? Great question. Who hired them? Who set up the systems here? Mm -hmm. So now we've encouraged people to sort of 
to go back to Plato's analogy of uh, the, 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 the allegory of the cave, the man trapped at the back of the cave, mistaking shadows on the wall for reality. Okay, so now we've encouraged people, turn around and look over your shoulder. Here's the question I would put to you. We kind of glance at the shadow. We kind of glance at the unconscious using dreams, using these kinds of questions, asking good people around us to mirror our blind spots. Mm-hmm. And then we start to discover things that are really troubling or maybe yes. disturbing. Mm-hmm. What would you, and I, <laughs> and I know the answer is in some ways go into analysis, but what would you have the person do in that moment? Right? I have looked in the mirror and I have seen that the source of greed in my organization is myself, is my own desperate need to make sure that I do not ever feel want again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. What would you have that leader do, that young person who is just, just glimpsing for the first time the unconscious in that way? Well, that's why this takes courage or desperation, either one will work, Um, because it obliges one to see, remember I defined the shadow as that which, when brought to consciousness, is troubling. Mm -hmm. So you can see why I have a motive not to bring it to consciousness. Just keep rolling along, and the consequences begin to, you know, uh, pile up over time. So... That's why I say we we either have a certain kind of intentionality or something happens that obliges us to try to make sense of all this. Mm -hmm. You know, when you talked about having that depression at midlife, um, you know, no matter what you tried to do from a traditional standpoint, didn't work. It dug the hole deeper. So you had to sort of go back to the drawing board and say, you know, what's going on here? What's this about really? And it's clear that something is not serving your life. Something has to die, and it's calling on you to consciously pay attention to that. Yeah. Now, again, talk is cheap. In, in practical life, this is a very difficult kind of conversation. So don't have the conversation. And again, the problem continues. So the, the paradox is many employers, many bosses are very narcissistically driven. You know, it's about power, status, wealth, ambition, et cetera, et cetera, their name up on the building, that sort of thing. And these are the people least capable of self-awareness because their, their sense of self is so fragile mm-hmm. that they constantly have to try it to sort of see it reinforced by taking credit for the employee's behaviors and productivity mm-hmm. uh, or, or by exercising power in a certain way. And, and that's the kind of person who frankly makes a, a terrible employer because everybody realizes that the, the, the telling motive in our relationships is about power, not relatedness. Mm-hmm. And, and you wind up serving someone else's problem. And those are the persons least capable of, of self-awareness. So what one has to realize here, it's, it's the strong person or the conscientious person who's able to recognize, uh, you know, that what's wrong in the world is in me as well. I mean, since when am I exempt from the human project? Mm-hmm. I don't want to think about the murderer in me because I've never murdered anyone to my knowledge. But maybe I've murdered some of my most creative thoughts or I've, I spoke murderously. Or I, I've, I've carried the wish to murder. Yeah, of yeah. course, of yeah. course. And, and that's part of our human nature. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, the yeah. wisest thing ever said about human nature was from the Latin playwright Terence 21 centuries ago, who said, nothing human is alien to me. Mm. Now, even while we would condemn someone else for their violence or their jealousy or their attitudes, you know, we, we have to find those same attitudes within ourselves. Mm. And the more we're split off from them, the more that they're going to operate unconsciously. That's why these, that's why Freud said once, People deny my theories by day and they dream them at night. <laughs> They're going to come out somewhere else. They come out in unconscious behaviors. Right, right. So, you know, part of what we try to express is that um, the work with a capital T, capital W in a sense, the work involves a kind of welcoming home those aspects of ourselves those very aspects of ourselves that we would consider um, attributes of the human project. Mm -hmm. and, yes. and, and, you know, in a sense, metaphorically, to blow them a kiss mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. tell them that we love them as much as we love those other parts of ourselves. Does this, does this resonate? Well, that's, that's why it's so difficult. I mean, the, the way we could put that, as you just did, is it's a summons to love the unlovable parts of ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, in 1931, Jung gave a speech to a group of clerics in um, Strasbourg, France. And he said to them, what if you find the most wretched person on the earth is lurking within your own soul? What will you do then? You know, you might be able to be generous and compassionate towards someone else, but could you possibly come? To an acceptance of, of your of yourself, mm -hmm. you know, and that's why I always was uh, drawn to Paul Tillich's concept of grace. You know, accept the fact that you're accepted, despite the fact that you're unacceptable. <laughs> that's brilliant. See, yeah. Often we get um, a, a notion in childhood or through our uh, religious or, or cultural education about moral perfection. Well, good luck with that project. You know, yeah. Yeah. we are all sort of stumbling through life, doing the best we can most days, messing up along the way. And welcome to the club. Yeah. So to, to be able to to call ourselves to accountability and be compassionate about that is, is a kind of dual task. And it's, it's very difficult to do yeah. because the more we become aware of this, the harder it is to truly accept oneself. Again, it's the thing that's most intolerable to the true narcissist because he or she is incapable of acknowledging the, the sort of darker parts of his or her personality. Yeah. And, and, and therefore, again, they're acting out in unconscious ways. And their children carry them, and their employees carry them, and, and so forth. And so a kind of violence to the soul gets perpetuated day right. in and day out. And then that employee goes home and, and projects that violence onto their children or Absolutely. their significant other. And, you know, one of our core beliefs is that within work and i don't mean the capital w work which is our, our psychic work but but within our career is an opportunity to do this work well yes because um it's one of the prime arenas in which we're spending our lives it's not like one can take care of this outside of work it's the person we bring to the place of employment as well every day and, of course, people bring their human needs, their fears, their apprehensions, their defense strategies to work. And, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like a, a larger family, so to speak, with all the dynamics of, of family. Mm 
So there are projections onto each other. There are complexes that are, are dueling. Um, it's often not about what it appears to be about. It's really about something else. Because underneath, everyone wants to feel of value. I am valued by you. I am valued by this company. And not just because I'm a workhorse, but someone at some level cares for, for the well-being of my own soul. And, of course, the bigger the corporation, the harder to have that kind of, um, of, of understanding or, or feeling state. I, I had a friend years ago who was an HR director of a major corporation in the East, and he said he always told new employees, just remember this. It sounds pretty harsh, but he, his motive was actually very beneficent. He said, remember this. The company does not love you. The company rents your behavior. And it rents it as long as it's productive for the, um, you know, the shareholders and the top executives. And the day it's not, they will cease to rent your behavior. Therefore, and this was his real point, your worth here is going to have to come from the degree and attitude that you bring to your daily tasks, the camaraderie you develop with your colleagues, and the life you have at home. In other words, don't expect the company to love you. It's a, it's, it's a non-entity in a sense. It's a it's a, it's a corporate fiction. On the other hand, we bring our emotional needs to every structure and every relationship. So there, you know, part of what happens with people is there's a lot of uh, disappointment and frustration because people want the company to be their, their parent or to take care of them or to do whatever. And that's understandable. It's just that's, again, part of my shadow. That's something I'm not accepting you know, in myself. In the meantime, how do I conduct my relationships with my colleagues at work? I mean, that, that's where this plays out over and over and over again. And so I think what we recognize is it's not as if the shadow can be left at home. It, it comes with us to the work environment. So, so given that, if, if I'm the founder of an organization, because we've talked about power and leadership and we've talked about the ability, but if I'm the founder or one of a, a pair of founders – there seems to be a particular capacity to replicate and reenact, whether it's family of origin or other uh, source material for that work. What is the moral responsibility of, the, of, of that founding leader? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, again, it comes back to the, this question of I can't take my company farther than I've traveled myself. So wherever I'm stuck, you know, I, I might not be able to make difficult decisions because I, I desperately need to solicit the approval and, and, and um, you know, approbation of everybody around me. Or I, I might not be able to address a problem because I'm afraid of conflict. I mean, that's, that's a common conflict. Very common. Very I mean, common. power is not the problem. Power is the energy to address life situations. Power can become diabolic when it's caught in people's complexes, when it's caught in the scenarios of another time and place. It's, it's sort of what we bring to the world. You know, there are two dynamics in all relationships. That's projection and uh, transference. And briefly, projection means every moment is new, and yet I continuously project upon it my own psychological history. And the transference is what have been my strategies historically to deal with a situation like this. Even while every moment is new, we are continuously imposing on it our behavioral patterns from the past. And that's why people often replicate at work 
their family of origin dynamics. Because where have I been here before? Oh, it's a group of people that matter to me that I'm spending a lot of time and energy with. Well, I've been here before, and up comes, you see, the, the transferential strategies of, of childhood or family life. And it, it plays out over and over and over. So in a sense, the moral responsibility is to step into the practice of self-examination and your introspection. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, it sounds so obvious, but what does that mean? It, it means that, that I have to continuously examine where is that coming from in me? Where have I been here before? What's that about really? I mean, I have to ask, ask, add that word really there because I can't trust my first response. My first response will always be my rationalization. You know, where, where a complex is hiding, there's always a rationalization protecting it. Well, I did this because you did that, or the situation demanded this, or I didn't have time to think it through. Or There's always a rationalization. But underneath that, the real question is, uh, it's not so much what I'm doing in any given moment, it's what it's in service to inside. You, you know, your, 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 your question in this line of inquiry reminds me of an experience that I often had in my own analysis with my with my therapist and she would say to me with 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 a tremendous amount of love in her voice what are you up to (laughs) yes yes you know and and the and the love in her voice was as powerful as the question itself Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that word really was was implied in her sentence that's what are you really up to jerry yeah what are you really up to and and you know, it was a there was a teaching moment there because it was it, it was twofold. It, it in that moment is the question, what am I really up to? To use your word, yeah. and it's a, and which is a call to, to 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 really stripping away my own tendency to delusion, mm-hmm. while simultaneously saying, and whatever you're up to, I'm going to love you nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Well, see, that's unconditional acceptance, yeah. and that's actually a rather rare experience, isn't it? Yeah, now I'm going to cry remembering that. Yeah. Because that desperate wish for unconditional acceptance to sure. my own self. That's right. Right? It's pro- that's pro- right. It's, been, it's been there since, since as, as far back as I can remember. Of course. That's why even tough-minded old Freud said toward the end of his life, it's love that heals, not not technique. <sighs> you see, because it's about something going on in the relationship between two people. And it can be atrogenic or disease-producing, or it could be healing. Yeah. And it depends on the psychology each of those persons is bringing to that moment. Uh-huh. Because there are toxins from people, too, that we receive, you know. They can project all kinds of things onto us. We can we can be encountering some pretty sinister stuff from others too. It's not just what we're we're producing. It's it's what is produced in others of which we need to be mindful also. So 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 to to be slightly reductionist here, in a sense, what I think we're coming to is that that in that process of glimpsing your blind spots, glimpsing your unconscious, glimpsing the ways in which. Your your childhood strategies have led to a kind of shadowed structure in which yeah. you're operating. That the answer is not only to address that with a kind of fierce introspection, but with love. Yeah, it, it, to the degree you can manage that, you see. Because yeah. remember, the, the, the core shadow 
uh, strategy for each of us is how can I survive in this world, get my needs met as best I can, and 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 avoid pain wherever possible. <laughs> now that that's rational at one level. It also leads to all kinds of complicities and evasions and denials and that sort of thing. And that's where the shadow comes in. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say it's not what I do, it's what it's in service to inside that makes mm-hmm. the difference. Mm-hmm. So if I do a good thing, it may not be a good thing because it's coming from uh, a, a needy place in me that's sort of soliciting the approval of the other person, let's say. Or conversely, if I do a bad thing, it may not in fact be in service to a bad aspect. That's right. But understanding the good aspect that I'm trying for mm-hmm. might enable me to alter my outward behavior. Mm-hmm. That's and- right in a way that that now is in in sync with my inner aspirations. Mm-hmm. There's a strange paradox here, and that is the larger the group, the lower the level of consciousness. I mean, which is why nations can get caught up in war fever or manias of various kinds, or corporations seem to be um, big lumbering giants with, with no relationship to each other. Uh, and, and yet, each of those collective uh, groups is made up of individuals. So the world is no better than what I bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And if I can just sort of clean up my small piece of the territory, um, I'm doing something for the world. And it may seem very insignificant, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the ecological slogan, you know, think globally, but act locally. I love that. I love that. It reminds me of something a friend of mine once said to me in, in uh, criticism of Buddhists. She said, you Buddhists, all you want to do is sit around and be happy. What if everybody just sat around and focused on being happy? (laughs) And I just laughed and I said, yeah, wouldn't it be kind of nice? (laughs) Maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. I said, then you'd have no clients, right? We'd have no clients. You know what? That's okay. I'll find something else to do with my life. Day job too. Yes. (laughs) Sounds like a good idea. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcasts to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Ready for a more in-depth journey of radical self-inquiry? We've developed a new free five-day email course designed to explore and work with your shadow. Get started at reboot.io slash shadow.